Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Few Choice Words podcast. I am your host, Chantelle Davison, copywriter and copy coach. And this is the podcast where we talk about the slightly less glamorous side of entrepreneurship and life. And today I'm joined by the fabulous Heidi Maver. Heidi is a late identified neurodivergent adult. She is a public speaker, an advocate, an author, a podcaster, and parent to an autistic ADHD teenager, the lovely Theo. And as of a couple of months ago, Heidi is also a number one best-selling author. Her book, Your Child Is Not Broken, Parenting Your Neurodivergent Child Without Losing Your Marbles, was released in January this year. Heidi, hello. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) So Heidi, you describe yourself as a chronic oversharer and a bit of a badass. So I could not be more happy to welcome you to this, the home of that exact vibe. I can't wait to get into your story. But before we do, I'd love to start off by asking you a really easy question, because that's what we do. What does the term neurodivergent mean to you? Okay. This is, it's so funny because I forget that not everyone knows this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm just like, neurodivergent this, neurodivergent that. So basically, uh, neurodivergent is a term that refers to anyone whose brain is not in the majority. Um, So anyone whose internal operating system, their sensory system, their nervous system does things differently. So uh, that will encompass, you know, the obvious that I think people are aware of when we talk about neurodivergent, we're talking about people who are autistic, ADHD, but it also includes um, other neurological differences. So dyslexia, dyspraxia, apraxia, um, dyscalculia, they're all considered neurodivergences, Um, Tourette's, OCD, mental health conditions that have a long lasting impact on your response to the world, uh, psychoses, um, traumatic brain injury or acquired brain injuries. Um, and then kind of anything that comes under the umbrella of, um, kind of neurological or sensory differences, those people would all also be classed as neurodivergent. Also, uh, Down syndrome is classed as neurodivergence. Um, so yeah, it's a bipolar disorder, all those things. Pretty broad umbrella. Um, Epilepsy also is included. So the way that I like to think of it is it's people whose brain maybe doesn't operate in the way that the world is set up for the most of, for the majority of people. Right. Okay. That's really helpful. Because I think, like you say, a lot of people don't know what we mean when we use that word. And I Mm -hmm. think if you run in circles where everyone's using it, it becomes a little bit of a bubble where you think everyone knows what you're talking about. So I think it's really great to open that up and make it more accessible, which of course is a huge part of your your mission with your book, which we'll talk about. So your your Amazon description of your book, which I love, described this as the book for parents who need permission to do things differently and says you almost died finding out why that was necessary. So I'd love to dive right into the juicy bit of your story. Can you tell us why was that necessary for you? Sure. So um, a little bit of like a very abridged version of what happened for us. Um, when my son Theo was 15, he hit a mental health crisis and went from seeming to be completely fine, in inverted commas, to not being fine at all. Within about six weeks, he went from being able to uh, operate normal everyday life to not being able to leave his bedroom. Um, and it started and it kind of culminated in issues around him not being able to get to school. Um, And what followed from that was almost two years of him not attending school. Um, And at the time, I didn't have any clue 
that he was neurodivergent. He's since been diagnosed autistic ADHD. He also has a tick disorder, sensory processing differences, dyslexia, dyspraxia, all the ears. He's a neurodivergent <laughs> as fuck, basically. <laughs> um, but at the time, I had no clue. And um, the pressure of having a child who is so unwell and who is not able to do something that pretty much every other child or young person is expected to and is able to do has a phenomenal impact on you as a parent. Um, And in amongst kind of the, the two years that he was really unwell and me trying to get support for him and advocate for him and find out what was going on and why he wasn't able to do the things all of a sudden and where this, I mean, it wasn't all of a sudden, but it looked like it was all of a sudden where these challenges had come from in amongst all of that, the impact that that had on my mental health saw me uh, spiraling um, into a pit of absolute despair and three days before Christmas um, ending up in the doctor's surgery, telling them that I was thinking about underliving myself. So it kind of went tits up in every way it could. And so when we came out of the other side of that and we are out the other side of that, Theo is now well. Um, He is, like I say, he's since been identified and as have I as being neurodivergent. Um, And he, but he's back in education and he's thriving. He's just finished his first year of animal management um, and got a distinction. So he's smashing it. Um, But when we came out the other side of that, I was determined to try and put something out into the world so that other parents who were in my position would have something. Because one of the hardest things was I was looking for information and I was just not finding anything. Like three years ago when this all kind of went belly up, there was nothing out there about difficulties with attendance Mm. and, you know, what that meant for autistic learners. I, I had no clue. So... I kind of, the book was a bit of um, a combination of a bit of catharsis for me, a bit of processing what had happened, a bit of pulling together the extreme oversharing I did on social media in that three-year period (laughs) and to try to give other parents something that would help them to feel less alone because that was the biggest problem for me. I was so isolated. Hmm. When you've got a child who doesn't go to school um. And that that isn't like an optional where we're choosing to homeschool or unschool or whatever. When your child is unwell, you are so isolated socially because so much of what you do as a parent is built around what happens in school and around school. Every conversation that you have with other parents is about what your children are doing in school, what they're studying in school. He was in his GCSE year. So it was just so incredibly isolating. And I wanted to do what I could to try and alleviate some of that for parents that were following us into this into this route so yeah I really want to talk more about that I have have one question that I want to ask you if it's okay uh I think I am a bit ignorant about about a particular term that you just used there and I'd love to hear why why you use it why it's being used because I've heard it used in a few circles unlive myself is a phrase that I've heard people using I'd love to know why why you use that phrase and what the importance of that is for people who've been through that experience or for yeah. you speaking from your own experience. So when we talk about unaliving ourselves, um, the idea is that we try to reduce and remove some of the stigma around mm. people who are experiencing suicidal ideation or suicidal feelings. You know, the, the, the kind of like traditional term is that someone has committed suicide. Mm. And when you commit something, you're a criminal. So it's around shifting the language 
from criminalizing people because it's not against the law to do that um and it's not a moral failing um so it's about shifting the language around that so that it really is kind of honoring the fact that people who are in that situation are making a decision and um honoring the that that is um humanizing it so by saying that you're thinking about unaliving yourself it's much uh more compassionate than it's easier language as well like for when you're in that situation yeah. it's very hard to tell someone else i'm thinking about killing myself because mm-hmm. again killing sounds violent it sounds aggressive it sounds yeah um un- unstable it sounds it's yeah, the language no, I... of murder right whereas if you say to someone i'm thinking about unaliving myself it's just a much easier conversation. I mean, it's never an easy conversation, but it's a, uh, so we were in the circles and in mental health circles, we tend to use that language. Thank you for explaining that because language is so important to me. Obviously as a writer, it's one of those things that I think about a lot. And sometimes I notice people using words and I'm a bit afraid to ask about the context or why it's being used, but I think there'll be people listening who caught that as well mm-hmm. and wondered. So thank you for sharing that. That's it's really okay. helpful. Thanks for and I, I agree. I think it's gentler language. It removes shame, blame. There's just so much of that around mental health, as we know, and as you dive into a lot yeah, more. Yeah, and I think it's also about the, if you say that someone has tried to or is thinking about unaliving themselves, it kind of, I feel like it gives people a bit more, uh, a bit more moment to pause because I think sometimes when you talk, when you use other types of language, people's go-to might be, well, what happened? What did they do? Do you know what I mean? And and it's nice to have that break in that, like that, even if it's a bit jarring for people to just stop and take a minute because actually those conversations are not helpful. Um, yeah. It doesn't really matter how someone is choosing to unalive themselves. What matters is that that's how they're feeling and that right. they need support to be safe. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. So you talk about being a parent of a neurodivergent child and how that can be a lonely experience. Is there anything, I know you've written obviously a whole book about this, but is there anything particular you wish you knew at the start of this journey that might have made it a little easier for you? God, so much. Um, I was totally unaware of all, uh, so much of the issues that face neurodivergent families. Mm-hmm. Um but I think the big thing that I wish I'd known is that I wish I had known that this is really common. I wish I had known that there are literally thousands of children and young people who have barriers to attendance um, and that thousands of them are unidentified neurodivergent. I wish I'd known what to look for. Like now that I know what I know about neurodivergence, particularly autism and ADHD, had I known that when my child was two or three or four, it was so obvious. You know, like it was like (laughs) he takes, he constantly like takes the mickey out of me. Mum, how did you not know? I'm like, well, I didn't know because you don't know what you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. And in many ways, he is a textbook neurodivergent kid. Um. You know, not that there is such a thing, but, you know, but I wish that I'd, I wish I'd had a better understanding. I wish I wasn't so stereotyped. I wish I wasn't so uh, brainwashed into thinking that there was one way to be autistic in particular. Um, And I write about it in the book, you know, when I was 
uh, I'm in my late forties now. I know how to believe. Um, and that's the right thing to say. Well done. Uh, <laughs> but I'm in my late forties now. And so when I was a teenager, Rain Man was in the cinemas and watching mm-hmm. What's Eating Gilbert Grape was in the cinemas. And they were like the, uh, the uh, kind of like the media presentation of autism and Rain Man in particular, Dustin Hoffman plays a character who is based on a real character, but his particular profile of autism is he's not, he's non-speaking. He doesn't speak a, a great deal. Um, he uh, it has savant skills. So there's a scene where he drops matchsticks and he can count the matchsticks. Um, he has quite high support needs. Um, and I thought that's what autism looked like, you know? Yeah. Um, and so when my child who is autistic didn't look like that, I didn't for a second think that he might be autistic. So yeah, that's what I wish I'd known. I wish I'd known what neurodivergence looks like. I was going to come on. Yeah. Or at least known who to have conversations with. And yeah. Yeah. Because you said in your book, in the introduction, you talk about, you know, when you when you're told your son is autistic, thinking, how can he be autistic? He doesn't look autistic. And I think that will resonate with so many people. Like what what was your idea of autism before? And what what do you think needs to change in terms of our perception of what autism is, what it means? How can we be more understanding of the broad church that that encompasses. So I thought autism was basically what the diagnostic criteria in the DSM-5 is, which is a seven-year-old white assigned male at birth children who have extreme obsessive interests, who Mm -hmm. don't make eye contact, who don't speak, who um, spin, flap, grunt, smash their head on the floor. That's what I thought autism looked like. Now, for some people, that is what autism looks like. For some autistic people, that is their experience Mm. and variations thereof. But I made the mistake that I think a lot of people make with autism, where I thought that there was a particular look. There was a particular, oh, you can tell that person is autistic. Um, you know, and I've I've even had that as an adult who is identified as autistic now. I've had people say to me, "Well, you can't be autistic because, look, you've got a job, and you, you know, you, um, albeit I work for myself because I'm completely unemployable." But there we go. You know, oh, but same, look, same. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> totally unmanageable. <laughs> big big red flag for autism. That one, by the way. But um, but yeah, you know, you you you're very articulate. You've got a degree. You've got a, a degree level qualification. You you're you're a published author. Mm-hmm. You know all these things that people think that autistic people can't do, and we think that autism can be identified by what it looks like on the outside. And actually, autism is an internal experience. Like it's from the root ought, which is internal of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's really hard because when we identify people as autistic, usually it's because they're having challenges and different difficulties. And usually the way that we um, diagnose a person is based on their external presentation of their trauma experiences. Um, so people who are autistic, who are not necessarily presenting in that way, or perhaps are not as traumatized or as obviously traumatized, don't get identified as autistic. But our experiences of the world are very similar. Right. So yeah, I think I thought that Rain Man, I thought Rain Man was what autism Rain Man was autism. Okay, yeah. So as you were going through this experience with Theo, 
and you didn't know what was wrong, but something clearly was wrong. Something was not, you know, he was not enjoying school. He wasn't able to attend. Something was clearly happening inside for him. You talk in the book about being told essentially that your child is broken. Mm -hmm. Who or what changed that? perception for you it almost feels like there was a seeing the matrix moment where you're being Mm -hmm. told your child's broken and now you absolutely do not believe that to be the case do you think it's the system that's broken and what changed your perception on that when did you kind of have that light bulb moment where you're like ah it's not us Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's you guys yeah and there were a series of light bulb moments I mean there were there were a number of like aha moments and Mm. it kind of was all cumulative I think initially I had the experience that many parents have when someone suggests that your child might be autistic because you have this really ableist stereotypical view of what autism is Mm. like I've heard so many stories and it was our experience that professionals saying oh god you know you don't want them to be autistic and that would be the worst thing in the world it's like people talk about it like it's some kind of death sentence Mm. um and the absolute worst thing in the world that could happen would be that your child was autistic and one of the moments when i had a bit of a like a scales fell from my eyes because i really struggled with that for the first few weeks after it became apparent that that was what was going on for him. I just found myself on a bit of a deep dive because guess what? Autistic people deep dive into shit. <laughs> so, but anyway, I found myself on a bit of a rabbit hole to find out everything I could mm. about autism. And I was coming across a lot of that narrative around it's awful to have an autistic child. It's terrible. It's the worst thing ever. Your life is over. Um, you know, they'll never be independent. They'll never, and that might be true for some autistic people, but it isn't true for all autistic people. You know, this kind of like really like terrible narrative around there is nothing worse than having an autistic child. And I would catch myself try looking at him and being like, oh, is he doing that because he's autistic? Oh my God, is that is that inverted commas normal? And Googling stuff that were just part of him. Like, just like he, he like me, he uh, bounces his legs when he's sitting still. Mm-hmm. And I'd be Googling leg bouncing, autism, you know. <laughs> Whilst bouncing your leg. <laughs> Whilst bouncing my leg, <laughs> you know. And I had this moment when I was, I was so freaking depressed about... Mm-hmm all the things that I was reading about how terrible it was to have an autistic child. But I genuinely, I was walking the dog around the block and I was walking back from the shop and I was upset. I'd gone for another bottle of wine um, because we're all about the self-medicating in our house. Um, And I'd gone for another bottle of wine and I was on my way back from the shop and I was crying. And I just had this moment when I thought, what are you doing? Like, I knew I was going to go back into the house and he would be sitting there with my partner and I had this like, he has, he hasn't changed. I had this like, kind of like moment of realizing that I would either have to give myself a kick in the ass and like decide to not let this ruin my relationship and the way that I looked at my child, mm-hmm. or I was going to give into it and like just become an autism mom. Do you know what I mean? And I just had this, yeah. it wasn't like an epiphany, but I had this moment when I was like, you know, like, he has not changed. 
your perception of him has changed. He has not changed. If he is autistic, he's been autistic since the day he was born. Nothing is different. You've got new information, not a new child. And so, and it was literally that moment when I was like, okay, so then that means that I'm going to have to, I'm not going to try and change him. I was coming up against that a lot. People saying, well, in the real world, he'll have to, or he won't be able to, whatever it is, you know, or he'll need to learn to, or he must, or, you know, all of this stuff around what he must do, how he must be in order to survive Mm -hmm. Um, in order to be, you know, valuable in society, all of which is absolute bullshit, all of which is rooted in ableism. Like, and I was just like, I'm not going to do it to him. I'm not going to do it to him. I'm not going to do it to me. I've not spent 15 years raising a kid to be full of self-confidence and know how to be autonomous and to feel comfortable in his own skin for this to be ripped away from me because some people don't understand what autism is. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, too fucking funny. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I think you, you talked a lot as well about the kind of advice you got at the time from authorities. I'm using inverted commas for those listening on the podcast, very sarcastically. Yeah, authorities. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> authorities who were telling you, you know, he's got to be disciplined more. He's got to fit in. He's got to be less curious, be... Um, more resilient, you know, not attracting much attention. And all I hear is be less, yeah. be less, be, be less, be less, take up less space. And there's a lot of similarity to that in the way that, you know, um, females are conditioned by society, mm-hmm. yeah. by the way that anyone who threatens the status quo is conditioned, you know, take up less space, try and Try and make sure that everything is as neat and tidy as can be for the people who are in charge of things. <laughs> don't rock the boat. Don't be inconvenient. Right. Don't make too so, much noise. What is better advice for how to parent now that you are the expert? Because you are now, you've literally written the book on it. You've, <laughs> you've spoken to all of these people and you've gone, no, that's bullshit. We're not telling our children to be less. We're not telling anyone to be less. What is better advice for how to embrace neurodivergence in your child? So for me, um, uh, there is a lot of really good advice and it comes in the most part from other parents or parent professionals who have lived experience of Mm -hmm. living in neurodivergent households. Um, So unless someone has lived experience I've learned that their advice, it may be interesting, maybe useful data, but it's perhaps not the most useful. Mm-hmm. Um, I will always value lived experience above everything else. Um, because I don't believe that people can fully empathize with your situation if they don't know what it's like to live your life. And it looks different for every family, but I come across professionals all the time who say things like, well, autistic people are, or autistic people do. And it's and they're usually way off. Yeah. Um. So, but for me, the most important piece of advice that I have applied to our situation, and I apply pretty much daily to our life, and it's the way that we have changed the way we do things, is that your priority all day, every day, must and has to be the well-being and the mental health of your family, and everything else can wait can be shelved, can be done differently, 
But every decision I make is based on that. Is this in our best interest as a family? Is this going to put any of us at risk of mental health damage? And if it is, we don't do it. Or if we do and we need to do it anyway, we put as many accommodations in place as we need to. Um, And we do make all kinds of accommodations for ourselves and I make no apology for it. If you want me to show up in the world, you're going to have to do things the way that I need them to happen in order for me to be able to do that. Otherwise, you will miss out on my fabulousness. (laughs) And what kind of accommodations are you talking about there? So people who maybe aren't familiar at all with this lived experience, what kind of accommodations, can you give an example of where you might need to ask for something in order to show up and give your best? Sure. So some of it is about expectation. Hmm. And a lot of it has had to come from me. You know, people can't, people don't have, have um, what's it called? Uh, what are they called? Crystal balls. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> people don't have crystal balls and it is different for every person. But for me personally, a lot of it is sensory stuff. Mm. So if I'm going to have a meeting with someone, for example, I cannot meet them in a pub or a bar that is playing music because my auditory processing is such that I won't be able to hear them. Um, And that's particularly got worse since I hit perimenopause. So I can't be in noisy environments and have conversations. Um, If I do, I have to rely a lot on lip reading and it's really tricky. I need to know that if someone sets me a deadline, that it's okay for me to ask them to remind me and for me to miss it (laughs) and for them to wait, even if it's just a few hours. Mm -hmm. Um, Because my ADHD and my demand avoidance means that I probably, I I rarely am on time for anything and I miss lots of deadlines. And it's not laziness. It's just, Mm -hmm. that's the way my brain does things. Mm -hmm. I need a sense of urgency for tasks to get done. I need more rest than maybe other people do. I need more social downtime. So I can and I will choose to do things in really busy social environments, but I might need a full day or two days afterwards to recover. Mm -hmm. Um, And things like, so for my son, for example, really struggles with noisy noisy places. So we'll take noise cancelling ear defenders with us. When we go out for food, Um, Not always, but sometimes he will need to be sitting with his headphones on and he will need to be on his switch. And so I need to know that people with me are not going to be like all tutty and stupid about it. I'm like, he's here. He he doesn't need to be making small talk with you. And he doesn't need to be making eye contact and listening to your boring story about your holiday in Tenerife. (laughs) P.S. Neither do I. (laughs) Frankly, nor do I either, Sharon. (laughs) but I'm polite and I'm good at masking, Um, you know, but those kind of things we did. We had a, Theo uh, had a big scout event a couple of weeks ago. One of the things that has always worked for him is scouts. Even when he couldn't go to school, he still went to scouts every week. Um, And it's always been his safe place. And it's always been a place that he's thrived. And one of the main reasons is there are tons of neurodivergent kids at that scout group, tons. Mm. And his leader is neurodivergent and they get it. So, um, he got his St. George's Award, which is like the highest level of scouting award that you can get. And there were 20 of us that were going and it was in a church. Churches are a freaking nightmare for autistic people. <laughs> like, because you don't know what's happening. You don't know what's coming. Even when yeah. they give you your order of service, like thank God yeah. for orders of service, but you don't know the Literally. words of songs. <laughs> you don't know when to stand up, sit down. There's bells ringing. There's weird smells. There's children crying. 
at one point they pass you a plate and you have to put money on it. It's so weird. Like, and no one tells you what's happening. It is so weird. It's the weirdest it's situation. So <laughs> and in this particular church service, because it was all it was, there was lots of applause. Um, it was just a lot. So I knew that we had, uh, with us, we had a number of neurodivergent people and we had some of the neurodivergent kids who were with us some of whom are not in school. So um, some of whom have really real difficulty with social situations. So we took our camper van and the deal was our camper van was parked in the disabled space outside the church with two of our dogs in it. And pretty much for the whole hour of the church service, people were in and out of the camper van for dog cuddles, (laughs) for regulation time, for like time to give their brain a rest and to sit underneath dogs Mm -hmm. (laughs) and be regulated. So yeah, it's those kind of things. Okay, amazing. Those are such brilliant examples. And you've used the word regulating there. So um, I think I know what you mean, but just for just for clarity, regulating, is that about kind of restoring a more neutral state in terms of sensory overload and, and yeah. when there's too much, too muchness? So if you're familiar with polyvagal theory, I don't know if, if you are or not, but polyvagal theory, the Little. three main states of polyvagal, fight, flight, freeze, mm-hmm. right? And um, there is also fawn and flop, but basically mm-hmm. they are stress responses. And the opposite to those stress responses is the safe and social in terms mm-hmm. of polyvagal theory. So it's when your vagus nerve is sending messages back to your brain that tells you that you're not in danger, you're not in threat. And your sensory system is regulated. Your frontal cortex is engaged and you're able to think clearly. When you're not regulated, especially for neurodivergent people, when our sensory systems are overstimulated or understimulated, it impairs our capacity to engage logically with what's happening around us. And you'll hear people talking about meltdowns or shutdowns. That's what's happening. So basically our brain switches off our frontal cortex. We can't think logically. We sometimes can't even speak, but sometimes it's more internal than that. And that's when we're not regulated. And in those moments of dysregulation is when we can't manage to engage properly with the world around us because our sensory system is just overwhelmed. Yeah. That makes some, yeah, that makes sense to me for sure. So I think I've heard it referred to as, as various different things, you know, panic attacks, amygdala hijack, but that's the polyvagal okay and this is the thing as well is to know that this is not a neurodivergent phenomena Mm. it's a human experience Mm -hmm. like every human being has times when they're dysregulated um you know especially in times of extreme stress you know those adrenaline spikes that you get you know if you are someone who's experienced panic attacks that's all in the same domain Mm. it's just that the wiring for neurodivergent people just makes us more susceptible to those things. And the cumulative trauma of not having our sensory needs met in particular means that those paths to shut down and meltdown are much more well-trodden. So tiny things can tip that for us and we can become dysregulated really quickly. So it's about understanding your sensory system and understanding what, where you're hypersensitive and when you're hyposensitive and what you need to balance that. So this brings us on to my next question, actually, which is your book is obviously targeted primarily at the parents of neurodivergent children, teenagers. But you also talk about how you received uh, your own gift through this process, which is realizing, (laughs) realizing, uh, I think you were 44 when you got your diagnosis, that you were also neurodivergent. So. I'm I'm treading a slightly similar path myself right now, um, figuring out that 
perhaps I have ADHD. No, you're definitely um, one of ours, Chantelle. You wouldn't be as productive <laughs> as you are if you weren't. And it's it's so fascinating, but that that wall you talked about coming up against um, with Theo about those feelings of oh no, it can't really be that it, you know almost almost shame and yeah. um, feelings of frustration, I guess as well that this hasn't been noticed sooner that there's no prioritization of noticing this, particularly in women. I think this is a a big phenomenon. There's a lot of women, you know, you hear. <laughs> You hear a sort of slightly droll, sarcastic, oh, everyone's got ADHD now. Um, but I think that that is a really frustrating thing to hear for those of us who, who are sitting here going, well, yeah, we only know we've got it now because no one checked. Yeah, <laughs> you no know, one no bothered one... <laughs> to, to be like, oh, by the way, no one brought all it up, those women so... that you've been calling neurotic <laughs> for the past 300 years, yes. all those, yes. especially what I'm learning a lot is I see a lot of women or assigned female at birth people, not necessarily just women mm-hmm. who are hitting perimenopause and are getting diagnoses of ADHD. Yeah. And what I have found really interesting as a late identified adult in the last, since my diagnosis, since my identification, um, how much more my traits and my symptoms of my ADHD in particular are switched on since my hormones started changing with the perimenopause and so i think my my personal theory is that the reason we're getting lots of late identified uh afab people is because we're all hitting perimenopause and then our ability to mask and to cope is stripped by those hormonal changes and all of a sudden our adhd is out and loud and proud and we can't Mm -hmm. hide it anymore um and i still think there are Hundreds of thousands of people who are not identified as ADHD because someone goes home, oh, it's the menopause. Yeah, that's so, so interesting. Yeah, it's it's a phenomena, um, but I don't believe for a second, I don't subscribe to that. Oh, everyone, we've got so many more autistic people now. We haven't. We haven't. It's just that historically we weren't identified and we weren't supported. And this thing about people saying, oh, everyone's late identified now, you know, the the life expectancy for autistic people in particular, particular is so much lower than the general population. The life expectancy for autistic people is 37. And the biggest cause of death for autistic people is unaliving themselves or heart failure. Wow. So we have, you know, we have a predisposition to co-occurring conditions linked to our sensory system, linked to our cardiovascular system, which means that many of us are more susceptible to heart conditions and medication we're often on makes us more susceptible to heart conditions, particularly ADHD folks. And we have a significantly higher risk of suicidal ideation, not because we're autistic, but because we're not getting our needs met and the world is not adapted for us. It's really hard to live in a world that works against your sensory system. Yeah. And so suicide rates for autistic people in particular are phenomenally high. And then when you get kind of intersections with other kind of marginalized groups, it it climbs. So people of color who are also autistic, again, Mm -hmm. it climbs. People of uh, autistic people who are also trans or non-binary, again, it climbs. So yeah. Yeah, we're fucked basically. (laughs) 37 though, that is crazy. I had no idea. I honestly had no idea that was the case. That that is astonishing. Wow. And also it adds to that kind of like community trauma because within the autistic community, we have lots of people who are unaliving themselves 
And we as a community are dealing with losing people who we care about, who are just like us, who we are seeing, you know, like, I don't believe autistic people are broken, but we we do get damaged by the world. We're not broken because we're autistic, but we are broken because of our experiences in the world. And if we're not properly supported, it breaks us. And yeah. so as a, as a community, the neurodivergent autistic community, we are used to losing people. And that I guess that reinforces well. that idea of being broken as well, doesn't it? It's a cyclical thing because if you're used to used it, losing people who are similar to you, if you are, if the message you're being given by the world is people who are like you can't survive this, yeah, that must that must embed somewhere really deep, yeah. In you know, and statistically, if you have someone in your life who has ended their own life, you are more likely to end your own life statistically. So, yeah. all of those things come together to push down our life expectancy. And, you know, it really is, this is what makes me so cross is when when professionals peddle this, you know, oh, it's about building resilience. I'm like, there is no one more resilient than a neurodivergent person who has made it to fucking adulthood. Like, yeah. please, for the love of God, can we stop telling us, can you stop telling us we need to build resilience? When actually what they really mean is you need to suck it up and stop yeah. being so inconvenient. Like we were saying, that's what people say to women, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and and going back to the thing about it, it's it's so much more than just we have a, a system that is that doesn't support disabled people. We have a system that is built, you know, a, a, a community. A, we have a a culture, a society that is built on classism, ableism, capitalism, built for and by white middle-class men cisgendered Mm -hmm. men and when you're not any of those things you're immediately at a disadvantage and the more you are not a cisgendered white middle-class able-bodied neurotypical man the more disadvantaged you are i don't hate all men by the way just to be clear no we don't hate men we just love everyone they just have to do a lot to impress me. That's all. To, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I think that's fair. The bar is the bar is higher, right? The bar is higher. They are a few steps further up the ladder. <laughs> okay, I want to ask you because I think this is really important. This is something I've been juggling with and toying with recently. How important do you think diagnoses are and labels are, and do you think those are the same thing? No, I don't think they're the same thing at all. Okay. I don't personally think diagnosis is important. I think mm-hmm. identification is important. Okay. I think diagnosis is a, well, I know that diagnosis is a privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want an NHS diagnosis of autism or ADHD and you're under 18, the current pathway on the NHS is usually minimum four years from first referral to diagnosis if you get a diagnosis. As an adult, it's a little less, two and a half for ADHD, three and a half for autism. Mm. On average, depends on your area as well. Um, And you can go through the pathway and you can go through the diagnostic process. You can be autistic and still not be diagnosed with autism. There's this weird thing within the system where diagnosticians are really not keen to diagnose. So for ages, Theo had a a social communication disorder and sensory processing disorder diagnosis. That's autism. Mm. 
(laughs) We talk about the triad of impairments in autism, right? Which is difficulties with social communication, sensory differences, and repetitive actions and behaviors. They're the triad of impairments, horrible phrase. But you know, when you've got a diagnosis of sensory processing disorder and communication disorder, you've got two out of the three, you only have to spend 10 minutes with him to see repetitive movements. He's autistic. Yeah. But there was this reticence to diagnose. And the diagnostician even said to him on the day when they, because he wasn't diagnosed first time. So on the day when he went for his assessment um, and they said, we're not going to diagnose you with autism. We're going to say that you have sensory processing differences, disorder and communication disorder. And he said, well, if it's not autism, then what is it? And they said, well, we just don't feel that you meet the criteria. And then there was a load of bullshit about eye contact and good communication skills and chat. And one of the reasons that they that they identified that he uh, didn't have sufficient communication impairments was that he spoke a lot about Scouts and Lego, two of his intense interests. If you'd asked right. him that wasn't his intense interest, he wouldn't have even spoken to you. He experiences situational mutism. Sometimes he doesn't speak. Um, right. But, you know, even for diagnosticians who are supposed to be experts in the field, they were applying things that are not in the DSM-5, like eye contact. Eye contact isn't in the DSM-5. There's nothing in the diagnostic criteria about eye contact. But there's this myth that autistic people don't make eye contact. Some of us don't. Some of us find it quite uncomfortable. Most of us have learned to fake it. (laughs) I look at people on the bridge of their nose. Right. Um, uh, otherwise, I spend too much time thinking, am I making enough eye contact? Is this eye contact good? Am I staring? Should I blink? Am, am I, I doing a normal? <laughs> am I passing? Am I, good am eye I doing it? <laughs> you know, all of that shit. Yeah. You know? um, and, but the, uh, what was I saying? I was saying about the diagnostic criteria. Mm. But so if you get a diagnosis, it is a privilege. One of the things that Christy Forbes said to me, who's an amazing person who's written the foreword for the new version of my book. They're a a neurodivergent educator. They're based in Australia was that thing about for the most part, we refer people for diagnosis when they become difficult or when their trauma is such that their mental health is challenged. That's when we send people for autism diagnoses and they are judged on the outward presentations of how traumatized they are and how challenged they are. If we took a an alternative approach to children and young people presenting as potentially being neurodivergent, whereby we were able to identify their learning style, for example. So neurodivergent people have uh, this intense interest thing where we, you know, my friend describes it as, if you imagine that your your brain your brain is an octopus with tentacles, and when you're into something, the tentacles are in and they're holding on tight, and you're not going to be able to extract your brain until you either get a break in focus or you're finished the task. And you can go all day and you won't even pee. Yep. That's how neurodivergent people learn. It's called monotropic learning. So it's intense interest on one particular hard focus point. It's why ADHD people are such amazing entrepreneurs, because we we start a task, and so long as we don't get interrupted we deliver like 500% when we're focused and we're monotropic in our learning. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. (laughs) If we did that for kids, if we went, let's have a look at this classroom. Where are our monotropic learners? Oh, there they are. Okay, excellent. So we know that the way that they will learn is by finding an area of interest that turns them on and then 
building all the other learning experiences around that. And that's what we do in primary school. We learn about the Egyptians. We learn about the Tudors. And um, we have creative writing and maths and colour recognition and phonics all tied into that. But then we get into Mm -hmm. secondary school and we're like, right, for the next hour, you're going to learn about Bow Lake systems in geography. And then you're going to change focus and you go to a maths lesson and we're going to teach you about algebra. And then you're going to change focus. You're going to move classrooms as well, by the way, and a new teacher. And you're going to make your way around a school and you're going to walk past the dining room. That's going to smell weird like school dinners. And then you're going to go to a different classroom. And in that classroom, you're going to learn about Shakespeare. And then you're going to maybe go and run around a field for an hour playing hockey, by which point you might be exhausted, (laughs) you know, and we expect neurodivergent learners to learn and to thrive in those environments. If we were identifying people based on their learning style, their presentation, their sensory profiles, we wouldn't be waiting for people to be traumatized to be identified and diagnosed. And we would be much more accurate in our diagnosis, I think. Yeah. The second half of the question, you've got me going. Can you tell this is one of my special interests? The second half. Of the- I am so fascinated by this because you're so right about school. Like, I mean, this is all ringing so many bells. The second half of the thing is the thing about labeling. And like Theo's diagnostician, when they didn't diagnose him with autism mm. the first time around, we went back and got a second opinion and ding, ding, ding. Knew I was right. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the first time around, and she said to him, I write about it in the book. She said, we're not going to diagnose with autism. And he was like, I I knew that would happen because he kind of had already worked out that he was just too, inverted commas, high functioning Mm -hmm. to to be identified. Um, And she said, um, you must be pleased though, Theo, because you do know that autism is a disability. You don't want to be disabled, do you? It was fucked. She did not say that. She did say that, she did. And we got in the car and he just cried. Of course he did. He was just like, and I'd done all that work about there's nothing wrong with being autistic. There's nothing wrong with disabled. Disabled is not a dirty word because I don't believe it is. And she's Um, dead now. (laughs) I mean, let's hope. Um, But, but, you know, I, and then people are like, why do you want to label your child? Why do you want to, and and like, as if to suggest that I'm going around like sticking stickers on things, like to try, the reason I, that labels are helpful is because two things. First of all, when you have a label that is an accurate label, it means the inaccurate labels are taken from you. So mm. as an unidentified ADHD, I have been called lazy, scatty, unreliable, noisy, rude, abrupt, distracted, um, you name it, unprofessional. Mm-hmm. None of those things are true. None of those things are true. I'm just ADHD. And all of those things that you accuse me of are explained by my neurotype. And they and by using those labels, you rob me of the humanity of being able to be honest with you and myself about what my brain needs and what my brain does. You know, you 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 shame me into not showing up. You shame me into not being able to bring something to the table because I don't behave in the way that you want me to. So that's the first thing. The second thing with labels is that By having a label, you can find other people that share your label and then you don't have to be on your own. So my close circle of people are all neurodivergent people. And there's within uh, kind of autism theory and neurodivergent theory, there's what we call the double, double empathy problem. Double empathy problem being that autistic people and non-autistic people 
basically don't speak the same language Mm -hmm. and the difficulty that we have in being in each other's spaces that we don't understand each other. The solution to that is historically has been to teach autistic people to speak non-autistic speak rather than to recognize that on both sides of the problem with communication is we just communicate differently. When I'm with other autistic people, I don't have that problem. Other autistic people get it. They don't need me to over-explain. They don't need me to try to guess what they mean, you know, and other autistic people who know they're autistic know that about themselves. And we could just have much easier conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't, we don't have to, we don't do small talk. Like there's this standing joke within the autistic community <laughs> that you, you know, when you go to an autistic dinner party, it's like, how quickly can someone get to a trauma dump? Like how we connect, <laughs> you know? But, so that's why, buddies for life. <laughs> yeah. That's why for me, when people say, why do you want to label your child? I'm like, because we get to choose our label then. You don't get to call them names and shame them. We get to find our people because we get to seek out other people who share that identity and labels like a care instruction. Mm -hmm. So like when you're, I say in the book, when you're washing a mohair jumper, you need to know it's a mohair jumper so you'll hand wash it with a lovely cold fabric softener because if you throw it in at 60 degrees, you're going to shrink it and ruin it. So you need to love that so much. Labels are a care instruction. Oh, that's so good. I love that. That might be the title of this episode. <laughs> Yay. I, I have one more question for you. I want to talk about language because that's something that means a lot to me. And you've mentioned quite a lot about, you know, ableist language and the sort of patriarchal structure of things not really being built for everyone as a copywriter inclusive language is a huge priority for me like that's something I'm really thinking about a lot especially in the last year or so um since meeting a lot of people in this community and I'd love to know what advice do you have for business owners for entrepreneurs either neurodivergent or not to make sure our message is as accessible as possible to everyone how can we be aware of the language you're using and, and what are some kind of common mistakes people might be making? Okay. So there's some obvious ones. The obvious one that is an absolute bugbear within the within the autistic community is with autism versus autistic. Um, overwhelming majority of autistic people would prefer to be referred to as autistic, not as with autistic. autism. Right. And when you're reading copy from someone, if it says with autism, for many of us, that'll be as far as we'll read. That when I read something and it says, blah, 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 somebody with autism, mm-hmm. I'll be like, ah, oh, this person is not, they don't get it. They're not, they're not going to be, have anything interesting to say to me because I'm autistic. I don't, I'm not living with autism. Right. And the reason for that is it's about identity. So for me, being autistic is, it's who I am. I can't separate myself from my brain and my sensory system. I can't pretend to be something other than I am. If someone is someone with autism, like I can't pick it up and put it down. It's not a handbag. You know, it's in in <laughs> as much as I identify as being a woman, mm-hmm. I identify as being autistic. So it's about having that identity honored. And for me personally, I would always capitalize autistic like okay. you would for black. So if you were saying a, a black person, you would mm-hmm. capitalize the B. I would always capitalize the A. And in my What's book- What's the reason I, for that? Because it's about, it's a, it's a, it's a noun. Okay. So, um, you know, it's in the same way that 
uh, a job title might be capitalized or um yeah it's 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 a it's a it's an identity now it's who you are not what it's you are who i am yeah okay and in my book you'll notice that i capitalize autistic and i capitalize neurodivergent mm-hmm. so for me to make on purpose done that on purpose much to my editors like we had to have a big <laughs> conversation about it well really it was like okay so if you want to publish my book you'll be needed to capitalize like this and by the like, way, everyone does want to publish your book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> and one of the main questions was like, so let's talk about capitalization. <laughs> like, yeah. what is this woman on about? God. <laughs> so How that's... I made decisions on which publisher I went with was what, what the conversation about capitalization looked like. Um, Amazing. I mean, how autistic is that? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but so with with autism big no-no for many people in the community not all and some individual people and you know we have to honor that some individual people would prefer with autism but the overwhelming majority is autistic um other things i think that are like for me and for many people that i've spoken to some of the language around neurodivergence there's a great book called what i mean when i say i'm autistic i'll send you a link to it it's it's out quite recently Thank you. There's a chapter in that about when people talk about superpower. Oh, ADHD is a superpower. Neurodivergence is a superpower. Autism is a superpower. Um, and whilst I understand that that is supposedly in the language of let's not strip people of their ability, mm-hmm. let's talk about what people can do, not what people can't do, it's also really invalidating to the lived experience of autistic people and neurodivergent people that it's really freaking hard to be neurodivergent and I'm not a superhero and I don't have a cape and I don't wear my knickers on the outside of my jeans. Um, And some days I don't even have the power of speech, let alone a superpower. So I find that challenging. I find it dismissive. Um, Right. Patronizing. Yeah. And also kind of just really just doesn't doesn't acknowledge my lived experience you know mm-hmm. that whole black and white thinking i mean at christ people accuse autistic people of being black and white thinkers but my god i've never known anything like it then neurotypical people really really want to be able to categorize autistic people are like this and they're not like this <laughs> you know it's nuanced we're human beings and like the dehumanizing of neurodivergent people i find really difficult um and what I would say is if you are a someone who is writing copy, for example, and you know, well, not your audience is going to be neurodivergent. I mean, like, you're going to have yeah, neurodivergent. Let's assume some audience. are. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, of course. Like, officially, 10% of the population are autistic. There's way more of us than that, but officially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and that's not allowing for other neurodivergences. But for me... Taking a step back from that, my first question is, why do you want to be inclusive? Like, yeah. why is that important to you? Is it simply that you want to appear to be inclusive? Or are you in, are you embedding that inclusivity in your core beliefs of your organization? And if you are, why are you? And mm-hmm. is it are you doing the work that acknowledges that it's not just because you want to be a good person and you don't want to get sued for disability discrimination? <laughs> It's because you recognize that by being accessible to people who don't have the lived experience that you do, 
you're going to have much richer conversations. You're going to have much better output, productivity, creativity. You know, if everyone is the same, your messaging, your product, your offer is going to be bland as fuck. You know, so for me, it's about taking that first step back and and really thinking, is my is my journey to being inclusive actually authentic and full of integrity mm-hmm. or is it because I don't want to get told off on Instagram for using the wrong language? Right. Yeah. And yeah. then when you've done that, pay someone to check your copy who knows how to do that. So pay a neurodivergent person to just check that you haven't said anything dodgy. Um, even better, employ actually neurodivergent people in your marketing teams. You'll get much better stuff. Like when I've worked in marketing, that was my background before. Mm-hmm. The people who were the most skilled marketeers, like were completely disorganized. and could never like really follow through on tasks, but the visionaries were the people who had these incredible ideas for campaigns or visuals or copy or, you know, like quite off the wall stuff. Mm-hmm. And then other people would make it happen. Yeah. But yeah, like that, I think that's, re- if you're make a commitment to, to your inclusion running all the way through your organization and invest in having people check things for you. Yeah. That's such good advice. And I, the, the piece about the big fuzzy brains of neurodivergent people is so, that touches a really personal note with me because like, that's my origin story basically is uh, I started writing because my dad is never diagnosed dyslexic, but for sure mm. <laughs> is dyslexic and struggles with, um, with grammar and, and writing and capitalizes random letters and stuff. That's always been part of the process. And we call that creative spelling in our house. Creative spelling. I love that. But it was always this thing was, you know, he's got these huge ideas. He's a proper entrepreneur, giant, buzzy, creative ideas. And I'd be the word person who'd kind of rein in and put, put it into some kind of order and, and find a way to communicate that. And I realized just how much I love doing that. And mm. I think that's why so many of my clients are neurodiverse because that's actually, that's kind of a skill I developed through working in that way. And as it turns out, I probably am too. Yeah. So I guess that helps. You're one of those, one of those bridges. <laughs> You're one of those bridges. gap bridges. <laughs> yeah, I guess like so. those of us who are neurodivergent and who also have that, that kind of like skill set that means that we are actually really skilled communicators because the mm-hmm. two are not exclusive. No. We have communication differences. It doesn't mean we're not good communicators. Um, But those of us who are those gap bridges, Mm -hmm. I think those people, having those people in your organizations or having those people employed to outsource work to, really vital. You know what else I I think about inclusion is um, think bigger picture stuff. So when you're thinking about making stuff, it's not just about the words that you're using. So it's about, for example, thinking about your formats. So even on Instagram, where we think of it as being a visual format. So making a commitment or an effort, and I am terrible at this, by the way, just, um, you know, do as I say, not as I do. It's something I'm working on. It's <laughs> oh, ongoing, <yeah>. right? <laughs> working to be inclusive is, is, is an ongoing thing. You can't just tick some boxes and be like, oh, fixed. I'm very inclusive now. Thank you very much. Um. But, you know, things like using image descriptions, because shock horror, I didn't realize this, but people who have visual impairments use Instagram. I just thought that they would just not because it was an image-based platform. How wrong was I? 
um, you know, using subtitles on video content. If you're making written content, make it available in audio format. Um, if you're making uh, text-based content, make it legible because, you know, people who have, uh, for example, dyslexia or things like Erlen syndrome, anything on a busy background will be completely illegible to them. So mm. it's it's about all of that. It's about you want to make sure that anybody who you're giving a message to is able to receive that message. And that goes beyond just a bit of nice language. There's nothing wrong with, don't get me wrong. I'm not meaning to play that down. But no, no, you're right though. Like, so when you get my book, uh, which obviously everyone will know. Absolutely. Uh, There's going to be a link yeah. below this podcast, wherever <laughs> you're watching is, or listening. My book is printed in a dyslexia font. <laughs> so um, it's kind of double spaced on the page. And when you look at the, the text, it's the letters are weighted towards the bottom of the letter and they're also not evenly weighted. It's quite a strange reading experience when you first start. Um, but it's to make it easier for people who have dyslexia and other reading differences to make it easier for them to read it. The feedback I've had from people who are not dyslexic is this is really easy to read. So that's the other thing about inclusion is that when you make that commitment to being inclusive, you make it more accessible for everybody, not just for people who have protected characteristics. Yes. I remember Sam Lebonzo talking to me about this and her example, which I loved so much, was lifts, elevators, mm-hmm. was you they were created for people with physical disabled, yeah. physically disabled people but they they help everyone yeah. <laughs> they, they now make it much easier to get your luggage up to the train platform for everyone so it's those creative out-of-the-box solutions that have been created for particular needs that are yeah. now making the world better for everyone and that's what inclusion is really about it's not mm-hmm. about including people who are otherwise excluded it's yeah. about making all of your spaces as accessible for everybody and everyone will benefit so when we so my son theo has um what's called an ehcp education health and care plan which is a uh, a document that uh helps his educators know what accommodation to make for him mm-hmm. and we had an annual review quite recently you have to go every year it has to be looked at again and adapted and new diagnoses included and all of that jazz. And one of the things that is in his HCP is that he needs regular movement breaks because of his sensory processing and because he uh, his sensory system gets overstimulated very easily and he needs to move his body because he gets so much built up energy in his body that if he doesn't move his body, he cannot concentrate. And then he starts ticking and his ticks cause him a lot of distress hmm. and he doesn't like people looking at him. But he is such that his social anxiety and his social communication differences mean that he won't ask for a movement break. So it originally said in the HCP, Theo will need regular movement breaks. Then we adapted it to Theo will need to be given a movement break every 15 to 20 minutes. But what we then discovered was that if no one asked him, he wouldn't do it. If someone said to him, do you want a movement break? He still wouldn't do it because he doesn't like to put people out. Um, And he didn't like being singled out. So now his EHCP says, in every classroom, the whole class will be invited to take a movement break every 15 to 20 minutes. So all of his tutors now know that every 15 to 20 minutes, they say, right, everyone, up on your feet, shake your bums. Every learner in that classroom benefits from that. 
because of there will they be do. other learners in that classroom who need a movement break, yeah. not necessarily because they're neurodivergent, but because that's how brains and bodies work. Mm-hmm. So by helping us all to understand the sensory systems of neurodivergent people, we actually improve sensory regulation for neurotypical people. There's a lot to be learned from extremes. And when you have a sensory system that works on the extreme, other people whose sensory systems are maybe not as extreme will benefit from the things you know about sensory regulation. Yeah. Heidi, oh, this has just been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. I, I couldn't have asked for anything more. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. I know people are going to appreciate it and learn so much. If there are people listening who feel like maybe they or their child might be neurodivergent, what would you suggest are, what is the first good step to take? to start yourself on this pathway to, to, you know, finding out how you and or your child can live their best life. First thing would be delete your mum's net account. Get out of there. It's a toxic <laughs> pit of ableist hatred. Don't go there again. That's the first thing. Tick. Okay. <laughs> I think, um, seek out autistic creators on social media and on platforms. That's where you will learn the most useful things. And um, there are some incredible, uh, there's, there's, I'm just working on a page on my website. It'll be up very soon. Mm-hmm. Books, recent books written by autistic people for autistic people and other neurodivergent people. Um, I think the thing I want to say to people is what was said to me quite early on and I found really useful and validating. Very few non-autistic, non-neurodivergent people spend any time wondering whether they might be neurodivergent. It's just not a thing. If you are someone that is like, hmm, yeah, that rings true. My brain does things like that. You're not making it up. You're not imagining it. There's a very good chance that you are one of us and you don't have to prove it. And if you feel like you're one of us, then you're one of us as far as we're concerned. And that's the thing I really love about the autistic community. No one ever asks you when were you diagnosed you know because we know that diagnosis is the privilege and we know that self-id is valid so there is no danger in exploring it's really interesting we have a, a course that we run um a couple of times a year i run it with a neurodivergent psychotherapist kate jones and it's called neurocurious and it's for people who are kind of starting to think about whether they might be neurodivergent and I have an OT that I do some work with and she's had a few people who have come through that program and have gone on to work with her. She was like, I've got a question for you. And I was like, right. She was like, it just seems like everyone that's done Neurocurious has come out the other end, like pretty sure that they're autistic. She was <laughs> like, what's that about? I was like, well, we are running a conversion program and our intention <laughs> is we're spreading the autistic agenda. <laughs> And I was like, because people don't spend money on a course to find out if they might be neurodivergent if they're not neurodivergent. Mm-hmm. So I think you can trust your gut on this one and understand that neurodivergent people, by our very nature, we are gaslit and it's mm-hmm. easy to gaslight yourself. But there's no, there's no such thing as lazy. And so if you're telling yourself that you're lazy, that's not true. It's something else it's a very good chance it could be ADHD. There is a wonderful line in your book. 
um, gonna bastardize it, but it's something along the lines of, I'm so glad you're here. No, really, you're so very welcome here. And I think that pretty much sums up <laughs> the the tone of what you're trying to create with your community, Heidi. So I know that your book is being republished very excitingly by a very large, rather global, rather fancy publisher. Do you want to tell us? (laughs) Do you want to tell people if they're listening where they can get your book on the 11th of May is when it's being released again? So as of the 11th of May, 2023, the book is being republished by Bluebird Books for Life, which is an imprint of Macmillan, one of the biggest publishers on the planet. Very exciting. No big deal, whatever. No biggie. (laughs) Um, so yeah, and the new edition says Sunday Times bestseller on the front cover, which I'm very excited about. Oh, what? Um, because we hit the Sunday Times bestsellers list twice, two times in a row. Anyway. Um anyway. Anyway, no biggie. <laughs> I'm like, I wrote a book, don't know if I mentioned that. Um so but you can get the book from Amazon. Uh, but you can also get the book from all good bookshops. So I'm very excited and I want people to, because I'm like such an egotist, I want people to do the J.R. Hartley thing and go into bookshops and say, hello, I'm looking for a book. Could you okay. check on your system for me and order it into the bookshop? I just would freaking love that. Ask for one self and get you've one. You've got your mission. Out. You've got yeah. your mission now. Please go into your local bookshop, not just because Heidi wants you to, but also because local bookshops are struggling and we need to keep them alive. Otherwise, the world will crumble. So go into your local bookshop and ask for your child is not broken. Yeah. And ask them for a copy for you and ask them to put a copy on the shelf. That would be lovely. And we will include links to that when it becomes available here, wherever you're watching, listening to this podcast. Heidi, thank you so much for joining me. It's been Thanks for having me, Chantal, and for letting me talk your ear off. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime. Come back again. (laughs) This has been A Few Choice Words. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've been Chantal Davison and Heidi Naver. Bye. (laughs) 